I turned 18, I decided I didn't want to go to school. Alexis Ayala had one ambition as a teenager. I wanted the fast money. In the early 2000s, he went to a charter school in Oakland that encouraged students to head to college. But Ayala had already tasted the allure of good money as a 15-year-old hustling up day jobs. I started at the flea market. It was funny, I would wake up at 7 a.m. and I just would go around the flea market asking vendors if they needed anyone, you know, as, a, as someone to work for them for the whole day. And they would hire me to help them put up, you know, like everything they had, like do the whole setup. And I would just chill with them for until like 5 p.m. I needed some spending money, basically. I just <laughs> wanted to have money for the week, like snacks for school, food. We had a shop that was close to our school and they had cheese fries. So, you know, that was my, I would like to go there. His work ethic and hustle made him a star employee when he moved on to the sales floor at Boost Mobile. And I became a manager really quick with my sales skills that I gained from the flea market. So by the time he graduated high school, his wallet was full of cash and college seemed pointless. I decided I didn't want to go to school. I mean, if I wanted to, I had the options. I had the resources at my like at the charter school that I was at. I was already making money at Boost Mobile. And I found no interest in going to school and not making money. Instead, he moved up the sales ladder to a job at the flagship store for a major wireless company in downtown San Francisco, selling phones to tech and financial execs with corporate spending accounts. I was always top performer. I was making $4,000 commission checks for like a few months. But that's also where Ayala started to have an inkling of regret about his career path. I will see all these tech guys walking into AT&T to buy phones and they will, they will buy, you know, whatever they wanted. And I will ask and they would say, our companies pay for it. And I was just like, damn, they're lucky, you know, <laughs> like they have companies that do that for them, that, that sends them to buy phones and it's on the company. Like I've never worked for a company like that. And then the pandemic hit. They limited our commission because obviously people were not coming into the stores anymore to buy cell phones. That's when I was like, I, that's when I, I was lost. I was like, okay, what am I going to do? No college degree. I decided to do door knocking for Xfinity Comcast. And like always, Ayala excelled in that sales job too. But door-to-door was a grind, working out of his car, always out in the elements. If you had to use a restroom, you had to kind of wait for a few hours because you were in the street the whole day. You know, you had to go find a, a, a restaurant. By now, the regret had really started to set in. Ayala realized that without a college degree, he would never get a job with a corporate expense account and free food in the break room. Looking at the next step up in his door-to-door sales job, he started to feel trapped. I would look at the managers and be like, they still work on weekends, you know? I never, I am always the type of person who does not want to work on Saturday and Sunday. I want those to beat my days off because that's when most people are off, you know? Um, and go out and do my fun things. Yeah. And the managers in my position will work weekends. And I'm just like, damn, like, I'm really going to be doing this all my life. And it was kind of sad. And I'd be like, I was like, I should I should have gone to school. But then Ayala caught a lucky break from someone who was willing to overlook his lack of degree. She had faith in me. She hired me on the spot. Huh, I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about that. I think the... you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, what's the purpose of a college education? Alexis Ayala's decision to skip college has placed limits on his career, but he's clearly a gifted salesman. Would a college degree really make him more qualified for a higher level sales job? This is the fundamental tension of college in America today. Is the value of a degree primarily to land better employment? Or is the experience of getting that degree inherently valuable, regardless of how it affects someone's employment prospects? The pandemic and subsequent hiring crunch have prompted a lot of soul searching about this. College students attending classes on Zoom during COVID closures were technically learning everything a degree requires, but many felt they weren't getting their money's worth without being on campus. And companies are now so desperate for employees, some are dropping the requirement that new hires have a college degree. So why had they ever required a degree in the first place?
Okta is one of those companies. It's a tech firm in California. And lucky for Alexis Ayala, one of his friends knew a senior recruiter there. He's like, you're hella good at sales, dude. He's like, you should like, you know, should, you should apply. Um, and I'm like, nah, they're asking for a degree. And he's like, nah, just he's going to send you his link. Trust me. Because I was like, who's going to want somebody like, you know, they want people who know how to use these computers, you know, all these fancy programs and all that. But when I had my interview, they said, we want the talent. We don't want that college degree. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, we, we see the talent in you. We see the hustle. And that's when I was like, man, it made me kind of like if it made me made me feel good because they're like, we see talent. Ayala got a job as a sales developer at Okta. It's a position that normally requires a college degree. His first meeting on the job, he immediately felt intimidated by other employees with more education. So I was like, I feel lost because a lot of they were using big terms that I didn't know about. You know, a lot of tech terms they were using and all these acronyms. And I was just like, damn, like, this is going to be hard. I should have gone to school. I should I, I would have known that, you know. But Okta is prepared for this. They have a program called Business Development Associates, or BDA, for people like Ayala who don't have a college degree. And it's for three months. They're paying you just to learn. Oh, you didn't even have to make your quotas. at. I didn't know quota at all. No, just presentations on what we did, on what, what, um, what product we're using to find sales, you know, everything. Hmm. So those three months, you felt like, um, you know, at the end of that, you knew everything you needed. Yep. In the program, they fill in all the gaps, like the jargon he didn't know. That program gave him confidence, and so did the game room they had at work. I'm a FIFA player. I love to play FIFA. And, and a lot of the management, you know, they played consoles as well. They played PS4. So we were just connecting, bonding there. And that's how I, was, I became so cool. And I'm like, dude, we're all, we're all the same. We're just working, and we're going to learn this, this system together. And, you know, that's it. After finishing the training program, Ayala had no trouble keeping pace with his college-educated co-workers on the same career path. In fact, he's seen as a model salesman. I, I created a document for my sales, you know, for my sales pitch when I call people. And my manager was like, hey, I want you to teach them, teach us how you're using these because I hit quota already on my first month. I got promoted last month to my new role. And my manager's like, can you present this? I want the team to use it. And everybody, like, everybody was like, hey, can you send me that? That's so useful what you created. Like, I feel good that they're using something that I'm creating, you know, that they're considering me, even though I don't have a college degree. But they see that, that I'm being successful in what I'm doing. And do you ever feel now like you could be better at your job if you had a college degree? No, because we do the exact same thing. Because now I feel like, you know, they have a college degree. I don't, but we're doing the exact same thing. They know how to use a system. I know how to use a system because of that BDA program I was in. Yeah. So the only difference is that you just got a little bit more time to learn it. And maybe they had to kind of like jump straight in and learn it faster. Correct. Yeah. They still don't know how to use a lot of the system that we have at Octa, So they still have to be trained on that. So I feel even more advanced when people that just started, um, they have to learn any, everything and we have to show them around. Do you think it's possible that you're a better hire than a lot of college degree holders? Like your practical experience just makes you that much like more valuable than somebody who spent four years at college? No, and I think I'm in the middle of it because you do need the education level to be there. Me, I just feel like I just learned a lot of these terms as I was going, a lot of like, you know, how to network and how to be professional. I did learn it with the experience. Mm. So it's like book learning versus like street learning, you know? Correct. Yes. So so you had to hustle more to get the knowledge and skills. There's a lot of experience with people who don't have college degrees, people who are driven, you know, to make money, to to make it out, people who want to better themselves and are going to do if, if a job asks you for a 40 calls, you're going to make 100 of those calls. Yeah. Because just the hustle you got. While he doesn't feel inferior to his college-educated colleagues, Ayala's main regret is the time it's taken him to get to this point. He's 27, still living with his parents. With a degree, he thinks he'd be further along. 
I'm already hella old, you know, like I'm supposed to be working on a family, you know, building myself. So do you regret that? I I do. Yeah, I do. Because I feel like I could have I, I would have been like better off in life right now if I if I would have been at a, at a tech company since I was 22, five years, mm-hmm. I could have done something. And even though he's excelling at Okta and being actively recruited by other companies, Ayala still wants to get a college degree. I just want to be able, when I have my house, have my big diploma hanging right there and be like, look, I'm, I've been, I was successful, you know? Every, I feel like that's just going to close my, my, like, give me a little closure. Mm. I'm not saying I'm not successful now. I know I was going to, like, jump into, I'm not saying I'm not successful. I feel su- success. Like, I've been successful lately. I, I can just picture myself in a big house with a big chair, my table, my desk, and just looking at my diploma and being like, damn, look where I'm at. I, it did take me long to get to get to my diploma, but, you know, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. That's going to get me closer, I feel like. He's not wrong. Moving up the corporate ladder, he likely will need that diploma. Unless you're an entrepreneur running your own business, the highest paying jobs in America generally do require a college degree. But that hasn't always been the case. As recently as the 1960s and 70s, education level and earnings were only loosely connected in this country. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Alexander Hamilton, Abraham Lincoln, both famous lawyers who never got law degrees. Abraham Lincoln read for the law, which is to say he read books on his own. Uh, He didn't go to college to become a lawyer. This is Anthony Carnevale. Tony, to everybody except my mother. And uh, I'm a professor at Georgetown University and director of the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. Carnevale researches the evolution of college in America. He says Lincoln didn't get a law degree because back then... There was no connection between college and a job, unless you wanted to be a preacher in some faith. The purpose of education was to allow people to live more fully in their time. There was a very strong view that college made you uh, more well-rounded person. I guess we'd say that today. That is, if you wanted to become a member of the elite uh, in those times, those of you who have seen Hamilton, uh, you had to go to college and learn Greek and Latin. In fact, Americans had a historic resistance to the idea of needing a piece of paper to get a job, says Carnevale. The people who came to America were rebelling against European societies that required that you become an apprentice uh, or that you knew somebody to get a job. The bias, especially among immigrants and the way our system worked, is if you could bake a cake and it was a good cake and you could sell it, well, no one's going to stop you. In Europe, you had to be a baker's apprentice, and that's still true. So that in the United States, there's a natural anti-credentialing bias. Most jobs back then did not involve work that required any sort of special certification. A lot of people were farmers. But then industrialization in the late 1800s introduced managerial jobs. And for those, a college education became useful. For people who wanted to be a bank or factory manager, college wasn't just about becoming a more well-rounded person anymore. Because you would be connected to people who could get you the job. Interesting, but it was especially about the connections and the sort of uh, prestige of having gotten that degree more so than what you were actually learning in those courses. Absolutely. Still true today a bit. But degrees were still not required for the majority of jobs. College continued to be more about becoming a better person, not landing employment. And then for the post-war and baby boom generations, factory work, sales jobs, and basic office work provided a good suburban life for white middle-class America. No college degree required. But things were upended in 1983 
when U.S. companies began to need more than loyalty and reliability from their workers, says Carnivale. Because in 83, we began real competition with the Germans and Japanese who dug out from the rubble. Uh, and they were better at us at manufacturing. Suddenly, Volkswagens showed up on American streets uh, because they were a cheap car that was better than anything you buy here. <laughs> so the, uh, in the end, what happened was employers began to face competitive requirements that they'd never seen before. Suddenly, there was a panic about American competitiveness in the global economy. Our mass production system was good at churning out goods for a low price, but that wasn't enough anymore. Because it didn't do quality, and we had a huge quality problem. Suddenly it was not only quality, it was variety. People wanted variety in what they bought, whether it was, you know, 12 kinds of chicken noodle soup with salt, without salt, you could get it without chicken, right? So suddenly what employers faced was these new competitive standards and the old top-down hierarchies could not achieve them. They needed workers on the front line who were skilled enough to get the job done in manufacturing and in services. And what they had was a high school workforce. So they reasoned, and it turned out correctly, they reasoned, well, if we want more autonomous workers who can do jobs where uh, there are lots of varieties and tasks and responsibilities, and we have standards like quality, variety, customization, convenience, speed, innovation. Um, what we're going to start doing is hiring, is hiring college graduates. And they were right? And, it, and that worked? It, it did work. I mean, the evidence on that is pretty overwhelming. That is, they might have been wrong, <laughs> but in the end, they weren't. That is, they had workers who were needed to be more autonomous, uh, who had to live in new kinds of institutions where it wasn't just the top-down hierarchy that worked. In fact, those stopped working. Um, one economist of the day said, you can't teach elephants to dance. Uh, big, clumsy organizations like General Motors just didn't work. The universities. For them, it was a gold rush. That is, they had something very valuable. They expanded enormously, and we built the community college system on top of that. So uh, the demand was very high. And so going to college eventually became, for most middle-class families, going to college became uh, the safest way to guarantee your child uh, middle-class status in America. And how how did colleges and universities justify continuing to offer Latin and, you know, any humanities major, <laughs> poetry, English, those kinds of things, as the specific value of, you know, an engineering degree or a STEM degree became clear? They did it anyway, because again, uh, in American education, there is an ethic, and the educators themselves hold very tightly to it, which is an education should make you, uh, give you the wherewithal to live fully in your time. And part of that is taking an English course or English literature course in the judgment of the educators. So back in the 1700s, a college education was just the cherry on top of a more well-rounded life for a wealthy, connected young person. Today, though, Carnavale says there is a lot more riding on that degree. In a capitalist economy, the bottom line is you can't live fully in your time unless you can get a job. Because living under a bridge with your books, eventually in some cold winter night, you're going to burn them. Still, he says college administrators are often resistant to the idea that there should be a financial guarantee attached to a degree. So if you want to know what the best program is, the most lucrative program for a bachelor's degree at Georgetown, it's accounting. Uh, now, nobody at Georgetown knows that, and nobody wants to know that. Why? Why do they not want to know that? There's an emphasis on classics and humanities. America is actually quite unique in the idea that students must get a breadth of knowledge in college. 
In Europe and Asia, Carnevale says college is much more focused on learning specific skills for employment. General education classes aren't required for a degree. Nope. I mean, their system altogether, apprenticeship starts when you're a sophomore in high school, um, which is very specific to an occupation and an industry. And then their university system is much more focused on learning in specific fields. So, and it turns out that long-term, the studies on this uh, show that the American model makes for more um, flexible worker, more flexible workforce, uh, and has advantages long-term. When you run the numbers on this, in many cases, the short-term value of a specific education, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning uh, certificate is very strong. But over time, it falls behind uh, four-year degrees that it was beating uh, in the original, say, three to four years after college. So in today's economy, a bachelor's degree often doesn't help students get a very high-paying first job. But by the time you're in your 40s and onto your third or fourth job, a college degree holder is likely to be earning more than someone with a trade certification. What if students could know exactly what they were getting into when they went to college and picked a major? That is Carnevale's vision for the future. And there's a bill in Congress called the College Transparency Act that would make this happen. If it passes, here's how things might look. The degree will be transparent. You will be told what happened to everybody who went to that school, took that program, got that degree. Mm. You'll be told whether they got a job and how much money they made. So that if you decide to major in archaeology, that's your business. But we're going to tell you what happened to everybody who majored in archaeology um, at your college uh, and at all the other colleges, if you want to transfer. We're going to tell you that. We're going to be absolutely transparent. It's your decision because in America, a college education is about living fully in your time. Anthony Carnevale is director of the Georgetown University Center on College and the Workforce. Now, if you decide that living fully in your time does mean going to college, it will be one of the largest investments you'll ever make. But we don't treat it like the consumer experience that it is. Instead, we act more like supplicants, right? And we're afraid to ask inconvenient questions. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. College tuition will cost anywhere from $9,000 to $38,000 per year, depending on where you go. That makes it one of the largest expenditures a family will ever make. But most people don't treat it the same as buying something like a house or a car. It is so easy for otherwise smart people who are successful in their lives um, to make an an emotional decision when it comes to college that is like, radically unintelligent. This is Ron Lieber, a finance columnist for The New York Times and author of The Price You Pay for College. Now, when you buy a car, you negotiate the price. So why don't we do that with college tuition? A lot is negotiable. If you know that it's okay to ask for a better deal, the next thing you have to do is figure out what is a reasonable ask. And most of those families throw up their hands and say, I I have no idea, right? Ron Lieber says price matching can work with college tuition, just like if you're buying a car and you say, look, I can get the same model for less at a dealer down the street. But he says, beware. One way to get laughed at is to bring in um, an offer from another institution that is not actually competitive with the one that you want the better deal from. You as the shopper can't always be sure, you know, in any given year, and it might change from year to year, um, who the school would prefer not to lose an admitted student to, right? So how do you figure this out? Well, one way to do is to look at the sort of, you know, selectivity figures, right? So, you know, if you're trying to get a better deal from from Oberlin um, and you know that they are about as selective as Grinnell or about as selective as maybe a little more selective than Kenyon, then, you know, it's reasonable to bring them an offer. So here's another way to get laughed at, right? If schools have differing list prices and then differing merit aid um, offers, 
what you want to be looking at is the bottom line price, right? Because, um, you know, if a school way more expensive than, say, Oberlin, right, offers a big discount, um, but you're ending up at a, at, at a net, net price that's that's um, that's higher than what Oberlin is offering you, even though Oberlin is offering uh, less of a discount, um, that's another laughable notion, right? Wow. Because like, Right. You know, so so it gets so and, and, and so that's a level of complexity. Right. Figuring out what the price actually is and who they're competing with. Now, if that sounds complicated, it is very complicated, which makes it that much harder for people to think about college education like any other large purchase. Julie, 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 why, why would you expect this to be simple when it's the <laughs> best financial decision you'll ever make? Why would it be clear? What unreasonable expectations you have as a consumer. How dare you? (laughs) And this is all complicated even further by the fact that people have a lot of emotions wrapped up in the college decision. And there are three feelings that tend to get in the way of sound financial decision making when it comes to college. First is fear. Fear of tumbling down the social class ladder if you get it wrong. Fear that if you send them to a lesser institution, they will have lesser opportunity and therefore a less steep trajectory that will cause them not to be able to do better, whatever that means, than their parents did, which is, of course, an American birthright. And so we need to spend more or we need to borrow more. We need to do more, right? Now, yours may be a family that has already arrived right at the top or near the top of your profession or you are at the top of the social class ladder in your town or suburb you feel like you've made it right and so often in those situations um, after having sort of scraped and scrabbled for what may be generations up to and including a you know sort of hard scrabble immigrant tale or having been you know discriminated against because of your race or religion or sexual orientation um, for decades and decades, you finally got there and all you want to do um, is erect a a concrete floor with the safety net net above it um, through which your child cannot crash, right? You're trying to guarantee against downward mobility after all that you have done. Or maybe you haven't climbed up that ladder yet uh, and maybe you've got this genius kid who found their way to you know a terrific set of teachers or a program that gave them access uh, to a k-12 education that you could have never have imagined for yourself and you didn't even get to go to college right and so you're worried um, that if your kid doesn't go to the very best or the very most expensive or the very something um, school that you are doing it wrong and you will have failed them after all of those opportunities that they got. This is the kind of stuff that people are afraid of. What you were describing there about, um, you know, a parent being afraid that they haven't done enough for their child, uh, that segues into the, the second emotion feeling, which is guilt. Sure. Um, so say you are a more affluent family, but... You haven't saved $300,000 for college. You you haven't even saved $100,000 for college. Um, Or maybe you have chosen, even though you didn't have to, to take the job with less salary that required less travel or not to do the side hustle or to invest whatever extra money you had in, um, you know, the kids enrichment over time or family travel or, um, you know, you uh, chose to or or had to um, devote a lot of money to, uh, you know, an aging parent or uh, another child in the family with special needs. And now you've gotten to the point where it is time to go to college. You simply don't have enough. Right. And you feel like you've done it wrong. Right. You didn't save enough. You didn't work enough. You didn't do the right things. And, you know, you're off on this sort of insane guilt trip. What's your message to those families, those parents? 
A message to those families is what's done is done. Uh, you have almost certainly done the best you can uh, at each and every moment um, that you made these decisions, uh, you know, along the way during the first 18 years. Uh, and you have nothing to apologize for. The only thing you potentially have to apologize for at this point is not doing the work to make sure that you understand the system as it exists, not as you would wish it to be, right? Because a whole, a whole bunch of families, pretty affluent ones um, in particular, uh, you know, get to the point where, you know, they're earning $150,000 a year, $200,000 a year in household income, but they're their living expenses, um, mortgage plus real estate taxes, plus, you know, everything else have sort of crept up to the point where there just isn't a lot of slack. And maybe they haven't saved much money um, because, you know, they didn't make the best decisions, or maybe they haven't saved enough money um, because all of these other expenses were legitimate, right? Aging parents, special needs kid, um, or maybe they didn't get to the point where they had that income until a couple of years ago. They didn't have an opportunity to save, right? Mm -hmm. Or they chose to save for retirement instead of saving for their kids' college education, which is what a lot of you know personal finance writing suggests people um, do. And so they get to this point um, and, and they're mad, right? You know, they have unreasonable expectations of the system. And, you know, they think that all these private schools should be discounting forty dollars or $50,000 a year for them um, because they just don't have it. And, you know, it would be nice if the system worked that way and all those institutions were rich, but many of them are not. They can't afford discount that much. Um, they would rather have lower income people who they're subsidizing. And that's the point at which, you know, you end up at your state university for $25,000 a year. And many parents who may not have gone to a state university themselves see that as a sort of come down, that that's, mm. quote unquote, all they can afford instead of seeing themselves as lucky um, that they're income is way above average. Um, and so I get that mindset. I get feeling like you've been failed by the system. Um, but where you end up in that often is not just anger, but guilt that you are not able to provide for your kid what you were able to experience yourself. And then you end up in a situation well, where you're like, well, you throw up your hands and you borrow $150,000 and you know you just say you'll figure it out later. Hmm. And so parents um, who are swimming in this stew of uh, frustration, anger, fear, guilt, confusion, um, <laughs> what are some what are some of the the um, kind of like red flags that you think can uh, parents ought to be able to recognize or you you recommend that they keep an eye out for that could help them understand if um, if the if if they're if they really are up against a wall if if they really do need to borrow. And, and how much is too much? Well, I, I guess, the, you know, the question I'd ask them, which is not not at all meant to be rhetorical, is where is it written that your kid um, must have exactly the same kind of higher education that you did at the same kind of place? Right. The world is different. The pricing mechanisms are different. Uh, inflation has you know, sort of blown this industry out of the water in, in a way that it's kind of outrun everything except, uh, you know, the list prices for healthcare, maybe. Um, that is not your fault. Um, you should not allow your kid to make you feel guilty about it. Um, it is what it is. And there are ample opportunities to get fabulous educations in all sorts of places that will only charge $25,000 a year. So don't get stuck in some kind of mindset that you're doing it wrong if your kid doesn't have exactly what you do. Which ties into the third feeling that leads people to make terrible financial choices. And that is this idea of kind of an elitism that um, a kid has to go to the very best or they're just not going to be as successful as they deserve to be, right? Which, I mean, it's... It's true in some cases that if you don't have the pedigree, you won't be able to succeed in certain fields, right? So how, how does a family kind of balance that or know when their elitism is, is unnecessary? Yeah, so here's the thing here, right? There's like a glimmer of truth to this because the snobs who work in investment banking and the snobs who work at the, you know, sort of fanciest management consulting shops like, you know, McKinsey is probably the most well-known example of it. Um, and the snobs in, you know, a couple of other uh, areas where, you know, the sort of market for um, entry-level labor uh, in, you know, glamorous industries like 
Uh, well, journalism has been one of them traditionally, particularly magazine journalism. Book publishing um, has traditionally been like this. Uh, you know, some of the entry-level Hollywood jobs too. Um, you know, people do tend to tilt towards more name-brandier institutions because those are often the places um, that they went 10 or 20 years ago. And by hiring people like them, um, uh, you know, it sort of reinforces the brand value of the institutions that they attended. Right. Um, and that's still very much meaningful to people. So, you know, that that ends up um, creating uh, uh, social class homogeneity. It ends up um, uh, discriminating against people of color, you know, creates all sorts of problems. But you may not be worried about that, right? You may just be worried about um, how my kid is going to get ahead. And so the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the general managers of all the sports teams, um, people in Congress, people who win MacArthur Genius Awards, uh, the people who work at The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal, a um, outsized, way disproportionate um, percentage of those folks have bachelor degrees um, from the 40 or so institutions with the highest average SAT score. It's just true. Um, now, that doesn't mean... Uh, that you have to go to one of those places to end up working in one of those places. It just means that it sure looks like it's given people an edge traditionally. Now, many, although not all, of these um, uh, fancy places that hire 22-year-olds are cognizant of the fact that this looks really bad. Um, and some of them are trying to change it. So we don't know what this is going to look like in the future. But if you've got a 17-year-old on your hands who's a math whiz and she wants nothing more uh, than to be an analyst at Goldman Sachs in New York, uh, and you're from you know, a rich suburb of Indianapolis, you should not send her to the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University because the snobs of Goldman Sachs will look down their nose at her. Uh, and that's a fact. Hmm. But this is a very small number of people. And the fact is, is that, you know, if you've got a, a kid who wants to be a psychology major and he wants to grow up to be a family therapist or do work um, in a mental health um, uh, counseling office uh, at a college, uh, he doesn't need to go to Yale in order to make that happen for himself. Uh, what he needs to do is, um, you know, call up his local and regional universities and the small liberal arts colleges that he's interested in and find out uh, how many psych majors from each of these institutions have applied to clinical psychology PhD programs in the last five or 10 years. And did they get in and where did they go? Because it turns out it's really hard to get into a clinical psych PhD program. And you want to end up at a school where the psych majors end up getting in uh, because that means they probably have mentors at the undergraduate level and classes um, that give them like the skills and the chops they need to cut it at the grad school level. And that's, you know, that may be Yale, but it also may be Denison and it may be Ohio State uh, and it may be um, Central Michigan University. And you just got to do the work to figure that out. And what if your kid doesn't entirely know what career trajectory they'd like to be on, but um, but you want them to have every opportunity <laughs> to, to, you know, to be able to succeed in what they end up choosing. And you want them to have a good experience in college. You want them to learn things and to learn to think critically and to make good friends and kind of all the stuff, you know, that we hinge our, ha you know, like our hopes and dreams on for college. What kinds of things, what kinds of questions should parents be asking um, their kids and, and, and potential schools in that case? Well, uh, here's what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't ask that totally reasonable, actually excellent question of the 19-year-old giving the tour at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. You should not ask that question of the 24-year-old assistant director of admission who is doing the group information session at McAllister College. Instead, when both those things are over, you should make a beeline for the career services office at McAllister. You should march right in like you own the place and say, hi, I'm thinking about applying here, uh, and I have no earthly idea what I want to do with my life. So could you please tell me what happens to first-year students who present themselves in this office utterly clueless and are looking for as much guidance as you can give them over four years? What do you do for them? And see what they say. Hmm. Wow. And see if you like the answer. 
People do not have a sense of entitlement about this process. We don't treat it like the consumer experience that it is. Instead, we act more like supplicants, right? Mm -hmm. Where we are sort of prostrating ourselves to these gods of rejectivity, right? And begging, right? And we're afraid to ask inconvenient questions that would allow us to cross these institutions off the list before we even apply. But in fact, we are entitled to better information at these institutions um, that have the nerve to charge $100,000 or $300,000 at uh, the rack rate. And in fact, you know, most of them sort of expect better questions and are a little bit surprised that they're not asked more often. And imagine being the director of career services at McAllister College and somebody coming in and asking that question. You are so stoked that point to brag about the really great stuff you do for clueless freshmen and sophomores. Nobody gets to talk about that with mm. prospective students because most prospective students don't have the nerve to walk in and demand that information. So not only might you learn a lot, you might make a friend who's really psyched to see you 12 months later when you enroll and will take you under their wing and help you do great things in the world. Ron Lieber writes the Your Money column for the New York Times. He's been a consumer finance reporter for decades. His latest book is a really handy guide for any parent of a college-bound teenager. It's called The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make. Ron, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I think we need to say, what do you see your life looking like What's, what's the level of life that you would make you happy? What's your nirvana? This is Ken Rusk, a construction entrepreneur who believes that we don't ask these questions enough. And if we did, more kids may realize that college is not right for them at all. It certainly wasn't right for Rusk. I kind of went kicking and screaming. I knew that I was one of those kids who loved to work outside. I loved to work with my hands. But more importantly than that, I loved to to control my own input level and therefore my output quality or, or the product that I that I created and also the financial rewards for doing both of those things. So I, I lasted about six months in college because I knew the whole time I was in there, this just wasn't for me. And, and believe me, I think kids are smart enough to recognize that, you know what, this isn't necessarily my path. I, I would rather go build a house then go to a business school and perhaps get really good at beer pong, but that's about it coming out the other side. Mm -hmm. So it, it was just a choice for me that was pretty obvious. Rusk spent his teenage years digging ditches and working construction. So he already knew he wasn't deterred by manual labor. Just the opposite. Walking into a construction office for the first time, he felt energy and excitement. I, I look at it this way. If, if, if you can convince somebody that they are really in control of their life, then that opens up a whole, a whole range of options that they might not have seen before. For me, I knew that I could dig ditches so that I could fill my gas tank. I could take my girlfriend out for pizza. I could go to the movies and buy a new pair of jeans. So I knew that I could do those things with and through this effort. But I also knew that there was all kinds of other options out there like carpentry and plumbing and welding and baking and cooking, electricians, whatever it might be. In his 20s, Rusk was running a franchise for a national construction company. And today he's a successful entrepreneur with more than 200 employees. He's written a book about his journey, which is called Blue Collar Cash. Rusk would like to see more American kids pursuing blue collar careers. But he's not talking about low skill, low wage jobs and things like retail and food service. He's talking plumbers, electricians, careers that require building and creating. Now, I need to tell you, I'm not an anti-college guy at all, okay? Um, if you're going to operate on my shoulder so I can get back on the golf course, or if you're going to engineer a building or, or teach people or manage money or something like that, yeah, you have to know everything there is to know. But if you're just going to school because society says that you should to get away from the stigma of a blue-collar career, that's not a real good reason to spend all that money and come out the other side with, with no real prospect. He understands, though, that in an economy where so many of the highest paying jobs require a degree, parents are nervous about letting their kids opt out of college. 
first off, we just need to take a step back and look at some kind of reality within our, our populace as it is today. So it, it, at any one time, there's about 167 million workers in the United States. And about 70 million of those people do something with their hands. So it, it would just, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for us to push all 167 of our future kids into college because then who would be around to do those kinds of things? Um, like, like build roads or houses or whatever you might do in the trades, electrical, plumbing, heating, air conditioning, any of those types of things. The other thing is what we really need to understand is it has always been a lucrative place to be, to be in the trades. Sometime around uh, the, the late 80s, when we took shop class out of high school and replaced it with computers, we kind of switched our mentality to this whole college prep high school thing. And that really eliminated millions of kids from accidentally discovering those types of trades, welding and, and, and carpentry and electricians and all that kind of stuff. And, and what, what's exacerbated that even more is right now you've got a situation where kids aren't growing up you know, playing around in the backyard, building tree forts with hammer nails and lumber. They're building these things on Minecraft on their cell phones. And that's not the same experience. So I think what happens is if, if you don't get to experience the possibility of that and, and, and the options that are out there for you, you're really missing out on an amazing opportunity. So, you know, it, it's a situation where we need to take a step back and we need to understand that it was lucrative before, but now with the supply and demand problem that we have, it is really lucrative to be in the trades today. But there's still the stigma of blue collar work to deal with. I have to tell you, I was I was at a party the other day and, you know, it, it's always humorous because you have the parents standing in a circle and it's like, well, my daughter's going to this college and my son's going to that college. And then it gets around to eventually one of them says, well, what's happening with so-and-so's son? Oh, he's just going to be a plumber. Well, I always laugh because I know that kid and I know what he's done. And now he's got a half a dozen vans and 12 employees and he's making an absolute killing, but he's just a plumber. So I, I think one of the biggest misnomers or, or the, the biggest um, misinformation campaigns we've run in the last 20, 30 years is that if you don't go to college, you can't make any money. And believe me, even from my own experience, that's absolutely ridiculous. Nothing could be further from the truth. So what's the conversation that you think parents of any, any um, you know, young adult graduating high school, what's the conversation they should be having right now? It's probably pretty similar to what I do with my employees. When, when I hire somebody new, I will get out a, a large poster board and believe it or not, I'll get out a box of 64 old fashioned Crayola crayons. And I will say, let's talk about what you want your life to look like. In other words, why are you here? You know, beyond I need a job, beyond I need to get paid, beyond I need to pay my bills. Let's talk about what you see for yourself in the future. And I think when that starts to happen, all these conversations start to happen that you may not have had before because again, we shove them through this if then society rather than starting with the then and figuring out how to get there. So yeah, I would sit him, I would sit him or her down and say, what, what do you see for yourself in your life? You know, what kind of expenses is all that going to take to make your life the way you want it? And then do any of these jobs fulfill that, that level or that need? And, and believe me when I tell you, they do. Is there any aspect of your career path that would have been easier if you had had a college degree? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, you not know, in terms of getting uh, investors, getting the bank to take you seriously, uh, you know, opening doors, understanding how no, to run you know, a business. It's funny. I honestly have to say no. I, I would tell you this. There are probably a few times when I sat around with with uh, with bankers or lawyers or accountants and you know, I had to have them explain that to me a few more times than, than mm. maybe somebody else. But mm -hmm. I have to tell you, nobody that comes into my world or any of my friends' worlds and sees what we've accomplished, nobody says first thing out of the gate, hey, where'd you go to school? You know, the, the, their first thing is, how did you grind this life out? How did you make this happen for yourself? And we're happy to share that information. But I mean, I do see your point about, yeah, is, is there something that 
maybe planning or learning how to run a company might be easier if you've gone to college. But I also tell you this, even when I was in college, you had to do payroll with a pencil and a piece of graph paper. That's how you did your accounts payable, accounts receivable, you used an adding machine. Well, now you can run a whole business on your cell phone with a pickup truck. It's mm-hmm. it's never been easier to do something like that because all that background work has been has been done for you, and it's a simple one app, uh, a button touch away. You know, is it harder work to to get to that level in a blue collar avenue compared to getting the college degree that opens so many doors? Well, again, I, I would I would just push back a little and say when when you say open so many doors, that there is right now there is an amazing oversupply of generic business degree graduates in this country that can't find jobs paying fifty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the average starting salary for uh, for the last two years with a four year college degree. I look at it as take a look at one of these other options. And, you know, see if you can't build the life you want for yourself and be happier doing it. I I talked to a plumber today who's 52 years old. He was in sales. He went to college. He did the the whole corporate software sales thing. And he goes, I was a plumber when I was a teenager. And I I quit my job to go back to plumbing because I knew I would be so much happier. Hmm. I'm not sitting in some cubicle on the 15th floor of some building where I'm just a small cog in a huge machine. When you're doing your own thing, you get to see the beginning, the middle, and the end, and and that step-back moment is entirely yours. Ken Rusk is an entrepreneur and author of Blue Collar Cash. Love your work, secure your future, and find happiness for life. Will the four-year college degree lose its status as the best, most accepted path to success in America's economy? The answer may depend on whether employers decide to permanently drop college degrees as a job requirement. But for the students and parents wondering now if college is worth it, the real question is the same one Americans were asking 300 years ago. What does living fully in your time mean to you? Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Ciara Hewlett, Cleon Wall, and Keely Gibson, with help from me. We had music and sound design by Jerem Hansen, Christian Mockatel, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. If you're enjoying Top of Mind, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. That'll help others to find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.